This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Mike Trout is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you'll find great baseball talk all week long and all season long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and the voice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN Radio, Doug Glanville. Doug, how are you, my friend? I am doing great. You know, getting the, the travel thing is moving along. And uh, yeah, I was in Chicago for like, a, I feel like I teleported. I don't even remember getting there or getting back, but I am back in Connecticut. Uh, happen to be in my car right now because that's how we do things. Wherever, any place, anytime, we're, we're like Visa. You know, anywhere you want to be, anywhere you want to pod, that's us. We're going to, we'll pod from rooftops, airports, uh, dungeons if necessary, whatever it takes. Dungeons? I'm not doing any dungeon shows, but uh, Doug, we have a really special show this week. Speaking of living legends, we have our friend Tim Kirkshin from ESPN joining us. Uh, he'll talk about his upcoming Hall of Fame moment and also his family's powerful and emotional experience with ALS. Uh, Tim will also stick around for our Strange But True segment. Uh, I honestly can't wait for that. Uh, also, our trivia segment will feature yet another legend and longtime hero of mine, the great Bob Ryan from the Boston Globe. Uh, he and friend of the pod, Bill Chuck, will try to stump us with trivia and talk a little about their new book, which I love and wrote the foreword for. It's called In Scoring Position. But first, uh, we need to talk about the stuff that gets managers fired and the stuff that happens after managers get fired, because, uh, Doug, as you know, the Phillies fired Joe Girardi on Friday. Uh, I have some thoughts on that, but curious, Doug, what was your reaction to the firing of Joe Girardi? Yeah, I was surprised you know, this early. I, I've been fortunate this year. I've done a lot of Phillies games and, uh, you know, in fact, saw him you know, not long ago, Phillies Mets in New York. So we do you know, the pregame interviews and, the, and just sort of getting the state of the union. And yeah, we, we did ask him a question, Joe Girardi, a question about, you know, his security, his job security. And he was, you know, he's been around the block. He knows how this works. And he was just sort of like, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm doing what I can. He didn't blame anybody in particular. He didn't blame, you know, personnel or anything. He just believed that this team could be better. And, you know, given that the playoffs have a lot of teams in it, he thought that there was an opportunity for them to, to turn it around. And um, and you know find their their space. They're an offensive minded team. We asked them a lot about you know the defense, knowing that that was a weakness going in. Bryce Harper's compounded that because he can't play in the outfield. So you have you know Schwarber and Castellanos who struggle in the outfield from time to time, uh, trying to pick up the slack. And that's a lot of games, not only the endurance to do it. So he's talked. He was always very open about these issues, 
So I thought that because bats are so fickle and no matter how good your lineup is, you're going to have your down times. I thought they'd kind of wait till they get all the bats hot or at least some of them and rattle off, you know, seven, eight in a row. They're the type of team that can do that because they have that kind of firepower. Uh, but he didn't, he didn't get that shot. And uh, we saw Dave Dombrowski, you know, operations head, I guess that's his official title. I don't know if he's GM or president of baseball, president of baseball ops. So we did talk to him and, you know, we didn't ask specifically about Girardi, but he always said this team is a, a team that I believe is, is a good team that will be successful. They never wavered from both of them, but the defense just, you know, hurt them a lot. Their bullpen was not, you know, sharp enough. Wheeler was kind of taking time to figure it out early. And you combine that with their just inability to hit at least enough, then you have a team that's just not going to win a lot of ball games. Well, I, First off, I like Joe. Uh, I I think he's a really good manager, uh, certainly with a roster that that fits him better than this one did. But in in terms of this firing, it it feels like I have a different take than most people. Uh, I get that this is definitely a flawed team. Uh, Get that. I don't disagree with that. Uh, Was not built to catch the ball. It hasn't caught the ball. But it was built to have an elite offense and that hasn't happened. Uh, I also think the roster has better bullpen arms than it's had over the last few years. And this bullpen has still been a mess. Uh, starting pitching has been really good for the most part. And I understand that it's hard to win with that formula, but it's been done. And, I, you know, I think that Dave Dombrowski's thinking is the manager's job is to get the most out of the strengths of his team. And for multiple reasons, that wasn't happening with this team. And so you had a team underperforming compared to its talent level. Um, it's a win-now roster. It's a, it's a front office that feels incredible urgency to win, at least to make the playoffs, to end a 10-year drought of doing that. Uh, I think this firing tells us exactly how much urgency that they clearly feel to do that. Um, so then they fire the manager. Rob Thompson comes in, becomes the first Phillies manager to win his first three games after the previous manager got fired in the middle of the season since. Are you ready for this, Doug? Dallas Green oh. in 1979. And what was striking about their weekend against the Angels was that team played exactly like it was designed to play a lot of thunder and with that thunder they put pressure on the angels from the start of the game to the end of the game which was the way it was drawn up but not what was happening so i always find this fascinating when a manager gets fired new manager comes in and the team gets on a roll like this um so i wanted to ask you about that doug it looks like to me, the only team that you played for where the manager got fired was the 2004 Phillies when Larry Boa got fired last week of the season. So is that right? No, I, well, I, I was there. Well, yeah, in the technical terms, yes, he was let go. Uh, actually, it's, it's quite a story. Well, Terry Francona was fired at the end of the season. In the end of the 2000, right? I think yes. it's 2000. Okay, so 
here's the note of that. We walk in the locker room. We were playing the Marlins, and this is Francona, the last week of the season. It had leaked out that he was getting fired. He knew. Yeah. Yeah, he knew. And, but we didn't know. And we walk in the Marlins, the locker room, and there's memos on everybody's chair saying Francona should be fired at end of season. It was it was it was pretty upsetting because that's kind of how we wow. kind of found out. But I know the front office was scrambling trying to get ahead of it, and um, and I think Galen Cisco I think was our pitching coach, but I I think it was Galen. He was so upset at how it went down, he refused to be the pitching coach the rest of the year. He like left. He was he was just upset about how just the way it went down and and how Francona would you know handled it exceptionally well. So that was I, that really stuck with me. And then fast forward to Boa in 04, and I know he was, you know, I remember hearing this in the hall at different times, like, I want to know now. He wanted to know, like, don't, like, drag me through the finish line and then fire me. And I think eventually they were like, fine, you know, you're, we're going to let you go. And then he's like, I'm done. And he stopped, and that was it. He didn't manage the rest of the season. And I think it was Joe Kerrigan is – the pitching coach, yeah, I think he managed the rest of the year. So they had almost the same situation. They were both getting laid off at the end of the year. And Bo was like, no, nah, no, nah, dog, I'm not doing this. <laughs> he, was, he was like, I am out of here. If you're laying me off, I want to know now. And Francona knew, but he's just he just finished. He just finished the season. Yeah, well, so, yeah, very so, so that's really yeah. my question, because both those guys, uh, the manager's fate was a constant topic for months and players are aware of that. So can oh, you yeah. describe what that's like for the players when it's just a never ending topic? And so what, and, and, and the whole phenomenon, whether firing the manager really has an impact on the clubhouse. I don't know whether it'd be by people in baseball or prominent psychologists <laughs> about whether teams play bad because of the manager or it's just a coincidence that he happens to be there and take the fall. Um, we've been debating this stuff for a hundred years. I'm predicting we'll be debating it again for the next 300 years. So Doug, we're so grateful today to be joined by one of the great people in our business and a close friend to both of us. It's the one, the only Tim Kirkshin. Tim, Welcome back to Starkville, my friend. It is always an honor to have a Hall of Famer in our town. <laughs> well, spoken from a Hall of Famer, Jason Stark himself, it's quite an honor to be here. Love you guys, and uh, thanks for having me again. Well, um, it's it's a thrill to have you here. We'll talk about Cooperstown in a bit. There's so much to talk about, and frankly, I mean, some of it is is it's emotional, and so. It, before we get into um, Cooperstown, Hall of Fame, baseball, I, I want to talk to you about Lou Gehrig Day in baseball and the incredible piece that you wrote on ESPN.com the other day about your brother, Matt, who has ALS. So here's my first question, Tim. How difficult was it for you to write that piece? Uh, uh, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um I wrote it with tears in my eyes, believe me. Uh, I just sat down and said, all right, if I'm going to do this, I have to do it now. I have to be in the right frame of mind to do it. And I wrote the whole thing in like an hour and a half. And then, of course, I polished it a thousand times. But I just figured I'm only going to be able to get through this once. And uh, so that's 
that's how it worked out. And it was something that, you know, John Chomby called me, you know, Boog is so involved in ALS. And he said, Tim, you know, whatever you can do this year, we need your help. And he said, you, you should write about your brother. Now I had planned on doing that anyway, but when Boog calls you and says, this would be good for the cause, I said, all right, I'm in. So that was, uh, I was very difficult to write. And I must tell you, fellas, I was not ready, not ready for the reaction that I got to that story. I wasn't sure if people would like it or whatever. I must have gotten 200 text messages, emails, phone calls, and they started like at eight o'clock in the morning. And it was such a difficult and emotional day for me to see how many people called me to tell me you know, how touched they were by this because their lives have been touched by ALS along the way. So it was a very difficult day. I must say I did MLB radio in the morning and I had trouble getting through the, the first segment when Steve Phillips asked me about my brother. I mean, it's it's just such a gut, gut wrenching thing for me and for everyone who's been through this. So um, the day got a little easier. And then, of course, the day finished. When we went to Camden Yards and my brother, Matt, who's very much at home on a baseball field, believe me, really, really good college baseball player. He took out the lineup card for a major league game. Brandon Hyde walked him out there. He met Scott Service. He met all the umpires. The Orioles handled it perfectly. It was a tremendous night at Camden Yards. We had all sorts of family and friends there. And my brother, Matt, really enjoyed that. Wow. There's so much to talk about here. Um, I want to start with this. I I remember so well last July in Denver at the All-Star Game, seeing you with your family. And I know that in a space of 24 hours, you learned two pieces of news that were both life-changing. Can you describe those 24 hours in your life? Yeah, I... I got nominated for the Career Excellence Award by the Baseball Writers Association of America. And whether I win or not, that's the greatest day of my professional life that I got nominated. So I was I was just so appreciative. I was so happy. And the next day we got the definitive uh, diagnosis that my brother had ALS. And so the greatest day of my professional life was followed by the worst day of my entire life because we had prayed this this can't be ALS, but they went through everything else and they couldn't find what it was. And unfortunately, this is how you know when you have ALS, they check for everything else. And when it's not anything else, that's where they end up. And so that was a really terrible day. And I had to do, you know, I had to do like three hours of television like the day I learned that my brother had ALS and I'm still not sure how I got through that. Um, And just to backtrack a little bit, the day before that I had done the, the celebrity softball game with my son, Jeff as the play by play guy. And that was probably the greatest day of my professional life sitting next to my own son who handled everything so beautifully. Then the next day I get nominated. And then the next day, like I said, I got the worst news I've ever received. Wow. Um, I, I want you to tell us a little bit about your brother, Matt. I, I, I watched the Masson interview with you and your brother at Camden Yards the other night. Um, your brother was just awesome, man. He was so strong and so positive. 
so appreciative of all the support he's gotten. It tells us a lot about him. And I'd like you to tell us a lot about your brother. Yeah, he is the strongest person I've ever met. He is the most disciplined man I've ever met. He lives the most Spartan existence. He doesn't need anything to make him happy. Um, everything you give to him, he is appreciative of. He never asks for anything from anyone. And he's always the one stepping forward to say, how can I help you? And now, now people are stepping forward to say to Matt, how can we help you? And he's very appreciative, but he's also very uncomfortable because he's the guy who's helping everyone normally. He is, you guys know how little I am. He's not much bigger than me. And he was a great college baseball player. I mean, his hands are so strong. I've never met pound for pound anyone with stronger hands than my brother, Matt. You know, he's the guy like when you can't take the top off a pickle jar or something <laughs> and everyone in the room tries it and no one can do it. You hand it to my brother, Matt, and he takes it off with ease. And now, sadly, he has no strength in his index finger and his thumb and that area, there's no strength and no dexterity in there. So he can't even button his own shirt anymore. He can't like use a nail clipper anymore because he's lost the dexterity and the strength in those two fingers. So the strongest hands I've ever seen pound for pound uh, just aren't the same anymore. But I must tell you, I was really moved when he was asked to throw out the first ball at the Catholic University baseball game last October. And he had to relearn how to throw a baseball. Doug, you know, you know, especially, you are born to throw a baseball. And my brother, my brothers were born to throw a baseball. And my brother, Matt, had to relearn how to grip a baseball using only the, the three fingers that still work on his right hand. And he found a way to grip it that way and still make an athletic throw to home plate. It was really an amazing thing. Typical of my brother. He's going out on a baseball field. There's no way he's going to fail. There's no way he's going to embarrass himself. And that was a really powerful moment when he did that. Yeah. Well, well Tim, I, you know, I always think about how baseball uh, defines my relationship with my brother. He's seven and a half years older. And, you know, from the time I could walk, he put a bat in my hands. He taught me the game, but he also taught me how to think about the game and just how baseball is sort of a way of life, a way of approaching problems. And, uh, and I remember just having stories we play, you know, he was much older. So we play in different leagues and we'd come back and tell stories about the game, you know, a play-by-play -play kind of format highlights. And that got me interested in the storytelling side of the game. And it's taken different evolutions over time how the game has informed that relationship and strengthened it so i i want to understand from you like what is what has shifted in the meaning of baseball since this diagnosis with your brother and, and what's sort of come from that right well it's taught me again how what baseball does for its players baseball celebrates its players it honors its players especially when they get sick look 
Catholic University had a division one program that both my brothers played at. My brother, Andy was one of the best players in the history of that school. And my brother, Matt was really good too. They're both in the hall of fame for baseball at CU. So as I told you on October 1st at Mount St. Mary's, they played one fall game. They're now division three Catholic. You did. And Ross Natoli, the coach there said, we have to do something for Matt. So he had Matt throw out the first ball that day. So when we got to the the stadium at Mount St. Mary's, first off, the visiting team never supplies the first ball. It's always the home team responsibility. But my, my brother's story was so compelling, the Mount St. Mary's coach said, all in. So Ross Natoli, the coach, gave my brother a jersey, a jersey that looked like the one he wore when he played at Catholic U. It said M. Kirkchen with his number two on the back. And he gave that to him and he went out and did the first ball ceremony. And it was tremendous. Then my brother looked to his right and his entire immediate family, his son, daughter, me, my daughter, Kelly, a couple of close friends were all there. And we we're all wearing Matt Kirchin, M. Kirchin, two jerseys. And then he looked a little bit further to his right and all 47 players on the Catholic University team were wearing M. Kirchin, two jerseys in his honor. This is the tribute that they paid to my brother. This is what baseball does for its players. And when my brother looked over and saw his children, and then he saw the entire Catholic University team lined up with his name and his number, he just started to cry right there on the field. And that's the first time I had seen him cry since his, his diagnosis four months earlier. This is what I've learned is what baseball does for its players, celebrates them, and honors them. Well, that, I mean, that story just gives me chills. I, I, you know, you've told it to me before. I've heard you tell it, but it's so emotional to even imagine that moment and what it must have meant to your brother and your whole family. Tim, I'm, I'm sure it was incredibly powerful just for you to be there. Well, it's the greatest moment I've ever spent in baseball, and I've mm. covered for 42 years because. It involved my brother, and because it was so personal, it was so family-oriented, but it was also a baseball story. And then Coach Natoli did it again. On April the 1st, he had a home game, and he had my brother throw out the first ball for that game also. Only this time, he had most of the players from the 1977 Catholic University team, the team that came two wins away from going to Omaha for the Division One College. College World Series. This little dinky team beat St. John's and won the ECAC Regional. And what made this one so special is my brother threw out the first ball with all of his teammates, all of his boys, the most decorated team in the history of the school, standing right next to him. That was almost as powerful as that day at Mount St. Mary's two of the greatest days of my entire life and two days that I'm sure my brother will never forget. Wow. Oh my God. Um, you know, I, I know at first you weren't sure whether you wanted to talk about his diagnosis publicly. Uh, when did you decide that 
you should? What what was it that changed your mind about that? Well, I heard from so many different people after my brother was it was made public. I did a, a fundraiser in with my son Jeff in Las Vegas, an ALS fundraiser, and without telling anyone about the fundraiser, Mike Piscotti, the, the father of Stephen Piscotti and the husband of Gretchen Piscotti, who died of ALS, he called me. I've never even met him. Mike Crawford, the, the father of Brandon Crawford of the Giants, called me on the phone. I, I received all these calls from all these people in ALS who were saying, we know you're going to Las Vegas. Let us know what we can do to help. That, Jason, is when I decided I, I need to write about this because I need to everyone to know the support that we are getting as a family from people we, we have never met before. I met a, a woman there named Teresa Thurtle who traveled all the way to Las Vegas just to come meet me and to tell me uh, when you need help, that's what we're here for. She lost her, her father and her, her grandfather and her mother both at age 49 to this disease. And she told me this is the worst disease you could be associated with and yet the support group is the greatest you could ever be associated with. So that night in Las Vegas, I said, all right, people now know about this. So I'm going to have to write about this at some point. And that's when Boog Shambi called me. I'd already made plans to do this. But when Boog calls you uh, with all the work he's put into it, I was all in. And Tim, I guess, you know, and, you know, given that support, uh, it seems early, but have you found a way or things that you want to do now to sort of cherish that history, that relationship even more so? Or are there things you're looking ahead to? Yeah, I'm going to, if there's anybody that wants to talk about ALS, then I'm going to be there because now I've lived it. I mean, you know, on June 2nd of 2021, the first um, Lou Gehrig Day. Chris Snow came on the air with us. Chris Snow, of course, former beat writer for the, the Red Sox for the Globe and now works for the Calgary Flames as an executive. And I, I could not believe how difficult it was for him to come on TV. And he did a spectacular job. And I and, and a year later, you know, we've stayed in close contact with him because he was so unbelievably helpful to my brother. And he told him, you call me anytime, night or day, and I will help you. But what saddened me a little bit is Chris told me the patients know more about ALS than the doctors do, meaning we, we need to do more about this. So that's what I'm in for. Whatever we can do to advance this cause, then that's what we're going to do. And again, Boog Shambi got me started, but Chris Snow and others uh, have got me in this completely now. Yeah, we had Boog on a couple of weeks ago, and he, he talked about his own personal connection with ALS, um, his best friend dying from ALS. Uh, I talked about that Project Main Street Foundation and the work that they do. Uh, I have personally contributed to Project Main Street. It's amazing. Uh, to anybody listening out there who really wants to help make an impact uh, in some way to, uh, to the fight against ALS or, or for families who are living with this disease, what should they do, Tim? Well, 
I would start with Project Main Street because Boog is so good at handling that. And then he's so good at dispersing from there. In other words, you start with Project Main Street. That's where I started. You start there and Boog will direct you from there about what you can do next. So it, it's just so sad to me because Chris Snow told us that, you know, we're 81 years since Lou Gehrig died of this disease and with all the money and all the uh, the attempts to, to make things better, things aren't significantly better with the understanding of this disease. And that just boggles my mind how this disease can be this mysterious still after all these years. And that's why I would start with Project Main Street and go from there. Yeah, Book talked about that. Um, like everybody wants to find a cure, but in the meantime, families who are dealing with ALS are, are having their lives disrupted in every possible way. And financially, the, the toll is so great. And what Project Main Street does is it helps those families who are living with this. It's such a great cause. Can't recommend it enough. Absolutely. And again, that that's what dr is driving me forward on this. I have heard from at least 20 different people in the last since that story ran of people that I don't even know who have uh, an issue with with ALS and people I do know that I didn't even know that so and so's wife died a couple of years ago with this. I didn't know that. And now I do. So uh, I'm much more in tune to the number of people. Now, this is such a rare disease. It, it shouldn't be that so many people that I've met in baseball have a connection to this now. And it's just the saddest thing I've ever seen. <sighs> Boy, you know, it's tough to segue to anything after that. But I do want to talk to you about Cooperstown, man. I, I told you a couple weeks ago what a thrill it was for me. Uh, I got my in invitation to induction weekend which is next month you know now that my picture's on that wall i actually get an invitation to <laughs> it's cool it's cool but what what a thrill it was for me to read your name on that invitation mm -hmm. and uh it brings it all back for me my you know my time was 2019 i know how much goes into that weekend is it starting to get real for you yet yeah, and, and I must tell you, I'm not exaggerating. I am scared to death. I have never been more nervous in my life about anything. I, I like to think I'm pretty good in front of people. I actually enjoy it. But this is this is different. And I've written my speech. I sent it to the people at the hall. Since you asked, Jason, I was told this is an excellent speech. Thank goodness. Uh, sure. It's a little bit long, so I'm sure I'm going to have to trim it. And then I'm going to have to memorize it. I've already been working on that. A few things need to be tweaked here and there once the hall calls me back with a few suggestions. But, um, yeah, when I take a long trip, I just uh, <laughs> sit in the car and try to do the speech out loud without looking at notes or anything else. I, I'm actually pretty good at that. But if I 
if I do this poorly, if I choke on this, I will never <laughs> forgive myself for the rest of my life. And that's why I'm so nervous about this. This will be the greatest day of my professional life. There can't be a close second. I just hope I get through in one piece. Yeah, you're, you're going to do great. But I, I, I mean, I, I can tell you the, you know, I was tweaking that speech up to like an hour before I gave it. And I'm in my room at the Oda Saga. My wife and my daughters are in there. There are a million people running around. They're doing their hair and everybody's got a million things going on. I had to go into the bathroom to rehearse the speech because I was so nervous about it. So that'll be you. That will be you. I, I believe. And I know I've told you guys this story before, but Tony Gwynn, one of the great public speakers ever, he's going in the Hall of Fame, whatever year that was, with Cal Ripken. It was fantastic. So the morning of the induction, Tony Gwynn Jr. is in the lobby of the Oda Saga. And I see him and I said, Tony, how you doing? How's your dad doing? He said, it's nine o'clock in the morning. He said, my dad sent me down here to get him a beer. It was nine o'clock in the morning because he was so nervous. And then Tony Gwynn Jr. looks at me and he goes, my dad doesn't drink. He was going to start drinking on the morning of the induction because he was so nervous about having to get up there. And then, of course, Tony Gwynn got up there and crushed that speech. But that's what Cooperstown could do to you. And I promise you, I will not be having a beer at 9 o'clock because that would throw me completely off. Hey, hey tell Tell us about writing that speech. I, I've never had more trouble writing anything, including three books, by the way, <laughs> than I had writing that speech. I wrote a version. I threw it out. I started over again. How, how did the writing of the speech go? Uh, it's been extremely difficult because you want to thank as many people as possible. But our dear friend, Bob Elliott, called me soon after I won the award and he gave me a few pieces of advice. He said that he wrote his speech and the hall came back to him and said, you gotta change this. This isn't personal enough. <laughs> You're talking about everybody else. Yeah. You're not talking about yourself and this is your day. <laughs> So I have thanked a million people in this speech. I could have thanked five million people. But in the end, I still think it's important to make sure that I tell a story about all the people in my life who have helped make this work. Um, so I've been over it a hundred times and I'm still, when the hall calls me back, I'm going to redo it and polish it and polish it again. And I'm sure I'll be tweaking it until three o'clock on July 23rd. Well, Tim, I, I always wonder, you know, I went to my alma mater not a few weeks ago, we were doing a game, Phillies Brewers, and I got to go to Kelly Writer's house, a uh, really cool event. And they, you know, students read your work for like a month and you, you get to talk to the students. And the one thing that was interesting when I sat in the circle is they kept coming back to the sense of what they called the imposter. It was sort of imposter syndrome, this feeling of even Simone Biles, like sets a debate, like, well, am I actually an Olympian? Like, am I a gold medalist? So I'm, I'm curious to know, like, you know, because of course, from my perspective, seeing both of you on here, like you guys are both clear hall of famers in, in my mind of it, but the feeling you have is so different. So what do you think that gap is about, 
you know, not sort of connecting yourself to some of these great writers when clearly you are <laughs> one of those great writers. Well, I'll never forget when Cal Ripken passed Lou Gehrig for the all-time consecutive game streak, which I wrote a thousand stories about that from Sports Illustrated. The one thing I'll always remember is him looking at me and he said, this, this can't be happening. <laughs> can't. Now, we all know this could only happen to him given the way that he conducted himself and played the game. But I, I will tell you, there are times... I wake up in the middle of the night thinking this can't be happening <laughs> to me. I can't be accepting this award on July the 23rd. So that's how I've dealt with it. But, you know, I, I look at the list of people who have won this award, the late Roger Angel. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Shirley Povich. You know, I do so much work with the big train here in Bethesda, Maryland. Shirley Povich, who I grew up reading. I mean, he's on that list, not to mention Jason Stark, Dan Shaughnessy, my mentor, Peter Gammons, who taught us all how to do this job. So many people on that list. I look at it and go, I don't belong on this list. This this can't be happening to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that I've described this to you before, but right after the induction was over, Lisa and I went back to Cooperstown a few months later. And we went to that, it was then the, still the Spink exhibit. And there was my photo hanging there and my story hanging there alongside all those people that you just mentioned. And I was trying to make sense of this concept that this is going to be hanging there forever alongside the greatest writers in the history of our business like, can you comprehend this? How unreal is it to think of people are going to be traipsing through that hall in like 300 years <laughs> and seeing your handsome mug smiling back at them? Well, it's not a handsome mug and I can't even imagine. I can't think of it that way. I just I just can't, Jason. I just can't say, think and I'm going to go into a press box one day on the road, just cover a game. And like in Cleveland, they have a list of every guy, a picture of every guy that's won this award. And my picture is going to be up there. I someday. told you that I in just, Houston last year. I said, go look at yeah, those photos. I, Next year, you'll come I, back here. It's going that. to be you. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. I can't let myself think that way. And, you know, I don't even know how Twitter works, as you know, Jason, Doug. And, but it's probably time for me to change my little Twitter <laughs> description. Yeah. First off, I don't even know how to do that. I don't even know how to edit it. But at some point, I'm going to have to put in there, yeah. I'm the winner of this award. But I haven't done it yet because I haven't made a speech yet. I'm not technically in there yet. So I may be someone can help me i'll i'll edit it after july the 23rd because uh yeah i volunteer to help you i've been trying to help you for six months so let's keep going with this right well yeah so i just can't allow myself to think that way that uh there'll be a picture there hanging for 300 years i can't so I, I was wondering so given all right let's just talk quickly about the written word all right, so now you've seen in the 42 years you mentioned, right, there's been generations of technological changes and research. And we talked a little bit last time about the research side, but what about the enduring legacy of just the written word? Like what has 
given the sustaining power to you in, in your experience? Well, the written word I found is way more powerful than the spoken word. Now, I understand when you come out and make anyone comes out and makes a tremendous speech on the radio or on a podcast or on television, it's unbelievably powerful. But in the end, it still kind of vanishes into the air. But the written word is always there. And I've always found that if you write something really well, or you write it really poorly, or you do something, it lasts so much longer with the written word. And, and you know, I've been on TV now for 25 years, but I am a beat writer at heart. I am a writer through and through because I recognize that the written word is so, so powerful. And that's what I tell every young person who asks, if you learn how to write, you can do a whole lot of things in this world, especially in this business, but you better learn how to write first. So nothing to me is more powerful than the written word. Um, last time you were here, you told us about your call from Johnny Bench. I'm thinking that since then, in your travels, there must be somebody that you've run across who was so excited for you, or you had some sort of magic Hall of Fame tinged moment. It, what's what's the latest greatest thing that's happened because this is happening to you um i don't think i told you this but bill raftery called me on the phone oh, one night wow. i love basketball i've never met bill raftery in my life i've watched him for years and bill raftery called me on the phone one night and said tim bill raftery just wanted to congratulate you on winning this award and i thought Oh my God, how did he get my phone number? How does he even know who I am? And so I talked for 15 minutes to Bill Raftery on the phone about baseball and basketball and everything else. And then about a half an hour later, Jay Wright called me on the phone. The ex-Villanova ex coach called me on the phone. So I finally found the connection. Tom McCarthy, our dear friend who does the Phillies games, one of the, one of the great basketball and baseball guys ever. I think he called both of them and said, I think Tim would get a big kick out of the fact that you guys would call him because he loves basketball, and I do. But to get back-to-back -back calls from Bill Raftery and Jay Wright, that was something I simply was not anticipating. Yeah, I know. I know that Tom was involved in that. Uh, I had some firsthand knowledge of that. <laughs> of that. But it, it really is wild. I like. I was just sitting here one day at this very desk, and Fran Dunphy called me from Cooperstown. Uh, the great Fran Dunphy. Oh yeah. He was walking through the hall, Go saw pen. my picture, and said, "I'm going to call that guy." <laughs> And it's Fran Dumfries texted me and congratulated me also. So again, I think Tom McCarthy's handprints are all over this, and I I really appreciate it. It was so so nice. Yeah, I, I I guess we need to talk about one thing that's happening this baseball season before we drag you into our next segment too. Um, Tim, your favorite story, baseball story in 2022 is what? Um. That's a really good question, Jason. I'm going to have to give this a little bit of thought. I, 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 I'm hopelessly biased here. I just love the way Buck Showalter handles 
everything. Okay. I sat next to him for six years on baseball tonight. The number of times he looked at me and said, uh, did you see that? Did you see that in the game tonight? So when I went to see him, he gets the Mets job and there's a question whether he's going to get it, whether he's going to take it. And I had such a good time talking to all the Mets in spring training about Buck Showalter and what he's like. You know, Jeff McNeil looked at me and said, he's a very curious man. Like, <laughs> no kidding. That's Buck Showalter's greatest attribute is he's always asking, what about this? What about that? These players were dazzled by what Buck sees when they don't see it. I told you that I asked Chris Davis once when he was with the Orioles, did Buck ever walk down the dugout and say to you guys, did you see what happened on that play? Did you see the third baseman move two steps to his left while the pitcher was in his motion? And finally, Chris Davis looked at Buck and said, Buck, I didn't see it. Nobody can see it. You're the only one that can see these things. So I've really enjoyed watching, and I'm not allowed to have friends on the other side now, but it's really been fun for me to watch what Buck Showalter has done to rejuvenate the Mets and take them to where they are. And I, I'm not surprised at all because I'm not sure I've learned more about baseball from anyone, Earl Weaver included, than I have from Buck. And most of the time it was just sitting next to him in the war room at ESPN where he would just look at me and ask me something. He asked me once, I told you, you ever seen a great player who has a lot of freckles? <laughs> <laughs> That's so so reflexively, I said, well, it's Rust, Rusty Dobb. And he goes, I said, a great player, not a really good player. So these are the things that Buck has taught me. So to me, that's one of the great stories is that, you know, Steve Cohen is out to win. He's got a $300 million payroll, but he's got that little guy in the dugout who doesn't miss a trick. And I can tell all Matt fans, I don't know what's going to happen this year. Your team's good, but you will never be on your team will <laughs> never be unprepared and your manager will never be outfoxed in the strategy of the That's game. So true. Yeah. Well, Buck, you know, as you know, my manager in Texas in 2003 and we he had a war room for meetings to go over the other team. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like the stadium seating. Uh, we had flags from every country that everyone represented. There was a map of the world, like a 2D map, and had pin marks in it for all the, the towns and cities we were going to invade or conquer, whatever he was coming up with. So And so anytime we went over players, he had information that, you know, obviously nobody else knew. He's like, well, I, I, I saw that, um, you know, we'll talk about Chris. I saw Chris Davis and, you know, I think he had a, a bad breakfast. It's not settling well. I think he's going to be a little slow on the bunt today. I mean, this guy, this guy was like unbelievable. So that was the meeting. So most of the time we just listened because I was like, where does he get this? Does he have spies? And and when I went on my rehab assignment, he checked every day. He was always checking in. And I was like, why are you worried about me? I'm making double A now, just like trying to get back. And he's calling me like, all right, make sure you do leg kicks. It's like, don't you have to make a lineup today? Like the big league team. So the, the guy is, I think there's like 10 of them, actually 10 Buckshaw Walters. And somehow there's clones everywhere. I don't know how he does everything he does. And long before a stack of, of papers arrived on every manager's desk, you know, Buck was the manager in Texas and he would do it by hand. You saw Doug, he would have his whiteboard with all the tendencies of the other team. It was unbelievably 
detailed and complex. You know, they love to run on O2 and all this, all the stuff that he came up with. So I walk in, I take a look at this. It's just so amazingly detailed. And he looks at me and he goes, every team does this. And Oral Hershiser was with the Rangers, looks at me and goes, nobody does this except for Buck. And that's why he's such an interesting guy. And when he was the Oriole manager, I'll never forget, he managed a major league game during the day, and then he went to Bowie to watch a prospect play that night. Imagine being a major league manager that goes to a double-A game after the major league game. So I, I asked him the next day, I said, how'd you like the kid? And he went like this. He goes, oh, I loved him. Great face, square head. Loved him. <laughs> Great face, square head. What, what does that mean? Oh. But that was his scouting report on meeting this kid, talking to him and watching him play. Great face, square head. <laughs> did, did, did you talk to Buck after he had his interview with the owner? Steve Cohen went to Steve Cohen's house and he, he he said afterwards, he said, Steve Cohen, the art in his bathroom costs more than the art in my whole house. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a piece Buck of work. Is, Buck is so, so good. Last thing on him, you know, his dad was a, the principal of his high school. So when you look at how disciplined Buck is, Buck was a quarterback in high school. He scored a touchdown, which he did many times in a high school game. And when he got to the end zone, this many years ago, he dropped the ball. He didn't spike it. He didn't throw it. He didn't throw his arms up in the air. He dropped the ball on the ground instead of handing it to the referee. When he got back from the game, his dad, who he loved, by the way, is standing on the porch like this waiting for him. And he said, if you ever do that again after scoring a touchdown, you will never play it down at this school again. Do you understand? And Buck said, yes, dad, I understand. So that's why the Mets will play things the right way, because Buck is the son of a high school principal who insisted on discipline in everything that we do. Uh, yeah, we've got Buck coming up on a, a future Starkville at a date I cannot uh, reveal, but yes. that'll be must listen. I, I got so I, that's big news. I've got one more big piece of news. We are not going to let Tim leave yet because I convinced him to stick around for our next segment because it's the most Tim Kirkshin thing ever. Strange but true. Doug, this has a chance to be. A strange but true segment for the ages. And you know why? Because Tim Kirkshin is a part of it. And this, as you know, is what Tim and I do. We look every single day for that stuff in baseball that makes you say, what? <laughs> That's impossible. Or I never saw that before. Or when's the last time that happened? So, Tim, let me ask you again. What's wrong with us? <laughs> Well, again, I blame Jason for all of this. Um, again, I was a strange little child, and I was looking up stuff like this when I was seven years old. Economics class, I did the all-money team, Don Money, Dave Cash, all those guys. In economics class, the teacher 
at least gave me a break that I was doing something, you know, about money and economics. But that's what I was doing in high school. But I blame Jason mostly because when I started writing about baseball, even though I always had a curious mind, he showed me where to look and how to find all sorts of weird stuff. So that's what I do every morning. It's my favorite part of the day. I don't drink coffee. I drink a Diet Mountain Dew every morning. I devour the box scores, and I slap my forehead at least once every morning. Like, what? what is that? How could that have happened? And then the rest of the day is spent trying to figure out how unusual this is what we saw in this morning's paper and some days boy there are five six seven things that just make you go oh my goodness this is incredible yeah now i I think we've talked about this before but once upon a time before we had baseball reference and before we could ask the elias sports bureau or stats to look up pretty much any harebrained question that we had uh, Tim and I used to have to research this stuff by hand, and so we try to brainstorm how to do it. And Tim, remember when we would take those trips through the baseball encyclopedia? We'd like divvy them up. You would take 50 years, <laughs> I'd take 50 years. Four days later, after we'd been through our half a century, we'd compare notes. You remember that? Oh, I, I did way too many of those. Oh I wasted I didn't waste time, but I remember I went to a restaurant once for lunch and I brought the Cohen and Neff encyclopedia, which yes. you remember is the soft cover. So it doesn't weigh 10 and a half pounds like the, the real baseball encyclopedia weighed, the Macmillan baseball encyclopedia. And I looked up at the last player, any player who had done what Tony Phillips had done. I'll be close on this, like played 10 games at all four infield positions and in the outfield and a DH all in the same year. And I did it by hand because that encyclopedia had it. It took me more than one lunch to do that. But when you get it right in the end, it's like the greatest feeling in the world that not only did I do this, I'm the only one who knows it because I'm the only one stupid enough to spend the time to do this. Yeah, I've told so many stories about these trips to the encyclopedia. We'll, we'll, we'll save it for some other time because I, we, we need to do our strange but true oddities of the week. I'm going to let you, as the special Strange But True guest star, do the first one. So the floor is yours. Okay, well, that that Sam Huff guy, Sam Huff, by the way, the same name as the great (laughs) Hall of Fame linebacker. He plays for the Rangers, catcher, all that stuff. By the way, Sam Hunt is Sam Huff as a broadcaster is doing a game once, and the the Patriots had a linebacker named Sam Hunt. Okay. So Sam Huff is broadcasting the game and he goes, and the tackle is made by Sam Huff. And then he pauses and he goes, no, 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 I'm Sam Huff. Sorry, that was Sam Hunt. So now there's a Sam Huff playing in the major leagues. And I this just jumped off the page at me. He, I looked at him and his batting average was 407. His on-base percentage was 407. And his slugging percentage was 407. So, you know, now we refer to the slash lines instead of, you know, homers, you know, average homers and RBIs. It's the slash line and all three were exactly the same. And the explanation is he was hitting 407. But since he didn't have 
a walk or a sacrifice fly or anything else, his on-base percentage was the same as his batting average. And since all of his hits were singles, <laughs> then his slugging percentage was also the same as his batting average. And then, of course, Jason topped me by saying, yeah, he had a 406 or whatever it was for eight straight days. Or something <laughs> now, number. now, here's the thing. he April 30th was his first game. So from April 30th through May 27th, he had the same slash line after every game he played. Now, it changed. I could be 333, 333, 333 some days. Be 387, 387, 387 some days. Be 246, 246, 246 some days. But it, at the end of this thing, he's still, for four weeks, he's still got the same slash line. Did Sam Huff, the football player, ever have the same football slash line for four weeks in a row? No, and again, this is the separator with baseball is the baseball statistics are just unique. There's nothing like them. I guess people go through the basketball box scores. I used to do that. I covered basketball briefly, and I loved it. And I would devour those box scores. But they, they don't find the oddities in basketball quite like they do in baseball, certainly not in football, because baseball just lends itself to really, really weird numbers. And that's what makes it so interesting. And, you know, I can't, there's so many things in the world I just can't see, like architecture in a house or, you know, what the chandelier looks like. I can't see that stuff. I can't remember it. But when you see 407, 407, 407, you just shake your head and go, what is that? Those are the things that jump out of the page of me. They don't do me much good, but at least I can see something. Doug, did you ever have, a, have the same slash line every day for Ooh. four weeks? You might have. Uh, I think I no. That's probably a problem. I would have at least maybe walked once in three weeks, and I'm maybe. sure I got a, a double in there. They've stuck a double off of somebody. So yeah, I, I, that's you know. But I probably had a, a couple days, you know, good streak in there. I'd have to look that up. We're gonna have to look that. Yeah, up Yeah, I mean, sure. I probably had like twelve days, maybe or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, my turn. Um, now here's the thing: we were going to do this last week, but we had a different kind of show with uh, with Rosenthal. So he, uh, here we go. Uh, so, Doug, what do Tim and I always say? That every day when you go to the ballpark, you have a chance to see something that you never saw before, right? We say that all the time. Oh, yeah. So, I want you to listen to this play from a Phillies-Braves game uh, a couple weeks ago. This is a, this is a Phillies 2022 special. <laughs> listen to this. It's amazing. And that one bounced up. Good secondary lead by Dansby. He's going to beat the rack on the throw into center. Swanson's going to advance the ball. Got by Herrera. Dansby's going to come around and score. Thank you very much. 5-4 Braves. I I guess that was a little hard to follow. So here's what happens, okay? (laughs) Jose Alvarado is the pitcher. Throws the ball in the dirt. Bounces away from JT Riomuto, who's the catcher. When he picks it up, Dansby Swanson, he's, he's danced a little too far off second. So JT decides he's going to try to pick him off. But the throw, like pretty nice little throw to second. The second baseman, Gene Segura, doesn't catch it. The shortstop, Bryson Stott, is backing up. He doesn't catch it, although he's <laughs> right there. Then it gets to the center fielder, that's Adubo Herrera. He doesn't catch it either. Rolls all the way to the warning track. So if you're scoring at home, and please don't score at home, by the way. What, like, what the heck is that? Well, they scored it as the old wild pitch error 
eight. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought there can't possibly <laughs> ever have been a wild pitch error eight before. Tim, let me ask you, have you ever seen a wild pitch with the error on the center fielder? No. I mean, let's just and, – and Herrera was diving for a ball on the play. There's a steal of second base, and the play ends with the center fielder diving for a ball on a steal of second base. I've never seen anything quite like that. I'm not sure how Segura missed it in the first place. I'm not sure. Stop was standing right there. I'm not sure how – he didn't knock it down, and Herrera wasn't really backing up, so he's diving for a ball on a steal of second. So a st- steal of second base turned into a run for the Braves. Uh, <laughs> that's that was about as bizarre as it gets. Yeah. Now I'm not going to ask Glanville if he's ever seen a wild pitch error eight. You'll see why in a moment. Uh, but uh, you you know how we think, man. So I had to know if this was the first one of these ever. So I dragged our friend Dave Smith, he's the founder of RetroSheet, into this. I knew he I, I knew that he could get excited about this stupid research project. And so the RetroSheet files go all the way back to 1914. He went through all the play-by-play files back to 1914. Oof. Guess what? He found one other wild pitch error eight was really similar to this. It was August 23rd, 2003, Cubs in Arizona. Sean Estes is pitching. Pitch gets past Paul Baco, who's catching. Eventually, the throw ends up in center field. Kenny Lofton misplays it out there. Alex Cintron started on first. He wound up scoring on this. <laughs> it's a wild pitch. Error eight is how they scored it. Here comes the best part. It's the epilogue. Dusty Baker is the manager. He takes Kenny Lofton out of the game. Now I turn to my good friend Doug Glanville and say, and who did he put in center at that point, Doug? <laughs> well, probably just me because I How was left. You? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you know, there's there's nothing better when you when you can't find a second play. So you think this is the only time it's ever happened, but so many times and Jason, you know this, when you find the one play, the other time that it happened, there's always a story <laughs> attached to the only other time that it happened. And that is just that is just priceless. By the way, Paul Bacco, Paul Bacco, wonderful guy, yeah. came up to me once, just introduced, I'd already met him many times, but he came up to me and just introduced himself. He said, Paul Bacco, catch and throw guy. That's how he <laughs> <laughs> that's Catch and throw. Yeah. Steubenville, Ohio. Oh, that's Paul Hoover, Steubenville, Ohio, right? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Very funny man. But hey, we lost our train of thought. Who yeah. has seen two wild pitch error rates? Doug Glanville has. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I love baseball. Um, I loved having Tim Kirkshin with us talking baseball. Tim, you were awesome, my friend. So all the best to you to your brother, to your great family. I will see you in Cooperstown. I'm sure I'll see you before Cooperstown. But thank you so much for taking the time to join us in Starkville once again. Well, thanks so much, fellas. It was a hoot. Love you guys. And thanks again for having me on. And uh, just just pray for me that I get through July 23rd. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, I'm there Absolutely. for you, man. I am.
Absolutely, Tim. Great seeing you always. See you on the road somewhere. <laughs> yeah, somewhere yeah. soon. Hey, uh, Lisa told me to uh, tell you and Kathy again. Uh, if you guys have any questions about right. anything, please call us anytime, right. day or night. I will. We will. I promise. Uh, yes. Okay. Let's confirm right. here soon. Okay. Stay in touch, boys. Thanks. Right. See you, right, Tim. Uh, Doug, this show is all mixed up this week, but in a good way. So you may be asking yourself, how do we top a visit by Tim Kirkshen? We bring in another Hall of Famer to ask this week's trivia question. We have the great Bob Ryan and his friend and co-author of their tremendous new book in scoring position, Bill Chuck. There are trivia guest stars. How are you guys? I sound bad, but I, I feel okay. <laughs> I, uh, you know, uh, I sound fine, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I have to say, I'm so honored. I'm so honored. I mean, you know, I'm unabashedly a huge Jason Stark fan. When I grow up, I want to be Jason Stark. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I consider him the, uh, I don't know, the commissar of Starkville. I consider Doug to be the dean of Starkville University. <laughs> and and of course, Tim to be the uh, the mayor of Starkville, which uh, if you figure it out, makes me the Stark Village idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we have every position filled except Stark Village idiot. So you're hired. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> let's do this. All right, look, before we, before we get to your trivia question, uh, let's talk about your book, which I was honored to be asked to write the forward for. And, uh, you know, most people know Bob Ryan as a basketball guru, but I know something the rest of the world may just be learning from this book, and that is that Bob loves baseball like I love basketball. So, Bob, I, I, I want you to tell us a little bit about your love affair with baseball, how long it's lasted, where it came from, and how it still still sustains you to this day. Speaking of as someone who, according to all family lore, was present when Willie Howard Mays Jr. made his organized baseball debut in the summer of 1950 uh, for the Trenton Giants in the Class B Interstate League, mm-hmm. uh, 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 my baseball uh, experience it is, I don't remember when I wasn't at a baseball game. I, I, I seriously uh, tell people that I don't remember when and I wasn't at a game, going to a game or getting ready to go to a game growing up. That's when my, because my father's business was was sports and he was affiliated with the Trenton Giants uh, in the late forties and uh, doing various capacities of promotion and so forth and marketing and this and that public relations. And uh, so we've supposedly, I was an only child apparently they took me to all the games every every you know the whole summer so uh and then growing up and then let's fast forward into the 50s um uh, i i made many trips to connie to shy park and then connie mack stadium the yeah. polo grounds uh he had, we had he had connections with both the giants and the phillies so i would wake up on a sunday morning in there and so you know when i was six seven eight nine years old and he would say oh we're going to new york today or we're going to philadelphia today and um and so we did i i i always say jason my two foundation sports are baseball and college basketball. And that stemmed from the fact that at one point for two years, he was the assistant athletic director at Villanova, which got me introduced into college sports. And even, I even predate the big five. I, I started going to the cluster in 1952. So <laughs> um, seriously. So that that's my, 
orientation and baseball. You know, I, I love baseball, and you know, I was a normal kid, normal childhood, played everything. Uh, but unlike every other kid in my block, I knew the infield fly rule. <laughs> That's it. That's the difference. That's essential favorite. knowledge, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, uh, your your book begins with the premise that it's a beautiful thing to keep score. So we actually talked about the book last week. We had a listener question from a woman about keeping score. So we mentioned the book. And Bob, you keep score in an actual scorebook, actually many actual scorebooks. So how many games do you think that you have kept score it's of? It's just the uh, first of the nine books that oh. are uh, um, that are uh, the genesis, uh, the source of the book. Uh, these are uh, over about 1,400 games, starting with the beginning of the spring training in 1977 and, and going right up to well, I, uh, last week. But it, for, as far as the book's concerned, uh, a game we have from last year, April of 2021. And uh, there's nine of these. The other are behind me over on the shelf. And um, see, what happened was uh, I, I had always kept score, but I didn't have, I only had, I had a book. I had a, a score master. I'll find it. I had a score master book. Uh, and yeah, they're bigger and cumbersome. Uh, you know, this is an official USBWA, uh, I mean, excuse me, BAU. BBWAA. Yeah, yeah, not to be confused with the USBWA, that's college basketball, <laughs> a book. And that's what you, I used uh, all throughout 1977. I became the beat man for the Red Sox for the first and only time in, in 1977. I started, and of course, I have the, all that season in here. And then I kept scoring. I just love scoring. And so without any exaggeration or fear of contradiction, I can tell you that I have scored every baseball game that I've been to at every level. Uh, since 1977, that includes whether we're on vacation or what. I always take my scorebook whenever I leave home once the baseball season starts, because as you well know, Jason, you never know when a baseball game is going to break out. And <laughs> if it is the college game, we have to talk about at some point. But um, so I had these, I have these books. I score every game, every single game. The only exception uh, uh, was a Cape Cod League game a couple of years ago when I wasn't prepared. I didn't think, go down there or we were visiting, didn't know we were going to go to a game. And I didn't keep score at that Cape Cod League game. But there are, in, in these books, there are Olympic baseball games. And there is the 1976 Women's Softball Championship game against China. Is in, is in, uh, that, that's wow. the well, well, the premise for the book is every page in those scorebooks tells a story. So when did you guys realize there was an actual book in all those stories? All right, this is why I, I, I cede the floor to my, my colleague. Go ahead, Dr. <laughs> Okay, so I uh, I met Bob one day at Fenway Park. I was thrilled. I, uh, my friends had taken me to the game, and as always, I'm scoring the game. And uh, uh, you know, I uh, they say Bob Ryan is a few rows up. Well, I said I've got to meet him. I mean, Bob and I had uh, just like uh, with with you, Jason. We we've exchanged emails forever. Uh, but I'd never met him in person. So I go up there with my, uh, and I'm carrying my scorecard and I explain who I was. And you know, this was all due, of course, to the great late Nick, uh, Nick Cafardo, who enabled me to meet so many people and introduced me to so many people. Cut ahead to 2020. Uh, I was very, very sick with COVID. And I'm just out of circulation for three months. Uh, and I come back to Twitter, it's got to be uh, April or May, and uh, 
I, I see that Bob is is writing uh, on Twitter what happened on that particular date in April from 1977, the year as he explained that he was the beat reporter. And I'm saying, well, this is brilliant. And so I wait a couple of days to see if he's doing it again. Well, of course he is. So I call him up and I say, hey, Bob, I've got a great idea. You know, you told me about your uh, your your scorecards. Let's do a book about them. We'll go through them together. We'll find the highlights. You'll write about them. It'll be terrific. He says, I'm having lunch with Dan Shaughnessy today. He calls me about two and a half hours later, says, Shaughnessy loves it. Let's do the book. And uh, from there, uh, we started working on it. We changed it a few times at the beginning. Uh, we, had, we, we were lucky with the folks at Triumph. We had a great editor in Jesse Jordan. Uh, we now share a, uh, a great uh, agent in Andrew Blauner. Uh, Bob is the miner, M-I-N-E-R, who finds these gems in, in a game. And people have said to me, well, there's a lot of Red Sox games in there. It's not about the Red Sox. It's about, it's about what happened. It's about the confluence of events or whatever. And so Bob's the miner, and I figured that I'm the gem polisher. I'm the one who makes it all shiny and bright so that everybody wants to read or hear more about it. And that's how the book came about. Right? Yeah, it's it's really fun. You, you guys do a great job with this. And we need to bring Doug back here because one thing that we've, we've proven is all things eventually come around to Doug Glanville. And so <laughs> if you turn to page 245 in the book, there's oh, a what? chapter called Dueling Leadoff Homers. Oh, uh, it's from a game played good. July 15th, 1999. Oh, Phillies, Red Sox, and absolutely. Fenway. Doug, remember anything about that game? Oh, I remember that very well. My brother was in town. We were staying at the Sofitel Hotel, I think. Sounds right. And he went to get like concessions or something, snack. I was leading off the game. And he walks in and I was circling the bases. Because, uh, so Brian Rose, I think it's Brian Rose. He was pitching. He was a former Rockies pitcher. He pitching yes. hit him really well. And yeah, I hit one out over the monster in left field. And so I, I was I was like, it was one of those like bucket list things. I hit a home run over the monster. So uh, yeah, that was that was really cool. Uh, yeah. So may, may I add a couple of gems? To, go ahead, Bob. You have something? A three-hit game for uh, Doug, by the way, that day. Yeah, <laughs> and I, 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 because the scorecard is right in the book. Yeah. And the things that I want to add is that uh, the it, it was because there were dueling leadoff homers. Both, both the Red Sox batter and the Phillies batter hit a leadoff. It was the only one of the season for the Red Sox. The Phillies hit three, of which Doug hit two of the leadoff. Uh, homers and that was the first game back Doug do you yeah. recall it was the first game back all after the all-star break, break. Yeah, that was that was I was there myself yeah that was that was really cool uh well I have one just quick question just thinking all right the evolution of scoring I'm curious like how you adapt it you know at any given time you know let alone ghost runners or zombie runners or you know the 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 third baseman who's you know five catches a ball in the right field corner. I'm just curious how you handle some of that stuff. 
That, Me too. That real quandary. Uh, the, I haven't figured the ghost runner thing out yet. I mean, really, I've, uh, of the games that I have been to this year uh, and scored, it's only happened once. And I, I have to go back. I don't know what I did with it. I, it annoys <laughs> me greatly. Uh, but the other thing, uh, yeah, I guess ultimately if, if the position, if the third baseman makes a play on the right-hand side of the infield, I will go 5-3. Mm-hmm. And just that's that. What else? What are you going to do? Are you going to put in parentheses? Maybe you could do yeah. that, I guess. I put a little note underneath. Yeah. Really, shift the problem is, I'm open to suggestion, Jason. <laughs> yeah. I you put in parentheses, like I'll put 5-3, but I'll put underneath in parentheses 2-B. Like, so he was actually at second actually, base. When five, he, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big problem. <laughs> there, there are a lot of things that are keeping people from keeping score anymore. This is one of them. What are we even doing? <laughs> Uh, look, th- th- this book is so much fun, um, and it is available, of course, everywhere books are sold, both in stores and online. But now it's time where we should get to the part of this that will undoubtedly be way more fun for you <laughs> than for us, meaning trivia. Uh, Bill, I believe this is your question, right? If, if yes. I'll let you, okay, so do you want to ask it? I'm assuming you guys yeah, have yeah, planned this out. I, I think I may be the only one who has it here. Uh, so here's the deal. Uh, you know, uh, I, I listen every week, and I know we try to keep it down to three, and we try to keep it within uh, the framework that would enable you to get it right. And so here's my question. During the Doug Glanville era, 1996 to 2004. And by the way, it is officially called the Doug Glanville era. <laughs> uh, Doug had exactly how many hits, Doug? 1,100 hits. 1,100 hits. That was 77th of all the players during that time period. Well, I'll take it. Only three players had over 1,600 hits. Gentlemen, start your engines. Who are they? <laughs> Uh, this is the first known use of the term the Doug Glanville era, I believe. So we, well, at least we have that going for us, man. Uh, okay, so we need three hitters who got at least 1,600 hits oh, I got from 96 to 2004. Yeah. Nine seasons, 1,600 hits. That's What does that come to? Almost 180 a year, huh? Yeah, that's a lot of hits. Okay, it's a lot of hits. So Derek Jeter, he's clearly got to be one of these. Then what? Um... Craig Bichio, right? Leadoff guy, didn't walk much, got the 3,000 hits. It feels like he should be an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Grace led the 90s in hits. He was still going uh, still through much of the Dung Glanville era. Oh, yeah. so that's a good one, right? Uh, mm. Manny Ramirez, Oof. that was his heyday. Uh, Chipper, Oof. hit 300 from both sides. Yikes. He's Throw him in there. <laughs> Kenny Lofton hit leadoff, got a lot of hits. Darren Erstad hit leadoff, mm. got a lot of hits. Edgar Martinez was a hit machine mm. in that time. I like I had an off the wall thought of Carlos Baerga. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, Jeez, swung at everything. But I relate. But Doug, it, it's your era. Ooh. Now, now that we know that it is your era, <laughs> what do you think? You must have some well, names here. You just made it harder. I mean, I like Jeter. The only thing I couldn't remember is remember he dislocated his shoulder, diving at the third. I think at Toronto. I wasn't sure how. Yeah. He missed that whole year. I don't remember mm-hmm. if it was in that period. Was I still playing or was I watching that on TV? I don't know. So that was one I thought know. I had. Um, 
the um i i thought someone like alex rodriguez um he had a lot of hits he definitely played through that whole era um then there's someone like um vladimir guerrero who swung at everything under the sun and had a whole lot of hits um but I, yeah i didn't you know most of those guys i mean those are two i thought yeah i thought jeter vladimir those are the first three that came to mind a rod because I know he had over 200 hits one season for sure. All right, let, all right, let's ask the great Bob Ryan. What do you think, Bob? My, We're all over the place. All right, my first two thoughts, because you mentioned so many people, but I, yeah, you have to, to trust me, the honor system here that they were Jeter and A-Rod. Those are the first two names that came to my head. Because I know that Jeter's a rookie in 96 and A-Rod actually made his debut in 95. And yep. and uh, so I'm, I, I would go, those are the first two that came to my mind. Yeah, I was worried about guys who walked a lot. Yeah. You know, he walked a lot. Chipper walked yeah. a lot. Yeah, Manny walked a lot. Yeah, that's no, why I didn't have those guys. But A Rod, he did have 200 hits one year. You know, so I figured I might have got him over. <laughs> True. Um, okay, well, we we got to we got to actually submit an answer. Um, oh yeah. So so uh, all right. So the rest of you guys, yeah, I know you said Erstad, and who else did you throw in there? You threw a lot of guys. Uh, Biggio, that, yeah, Biggio was. A, Biggio, but Biggio seems like he's a good one, huh? Um, yeah, that's a good one. Biggio is a good one. I mean, he played. He had three thousand hits, but it was over like twenty years, though, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Ah, uh, that's it's true. Me. But then he was young and. <laughs> Ah, okay. So, all right. Well, I, all right. So, we're going to stick with Jeter and A Rod, and then we're it's Biggio or Vlad's Vlad. would be a really good guess. Or Mark Grace. Yeah, I think Grace kind of sla- fell off a little bit at some okay. point. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. 90s. By 2004 5. I don't know. Um, Man, that's a good question. All right. So, yeah. Well, I don't know. What do you think? The tiebreaker. If we have Biggio and Vlad, what are we doing there? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Can I go? What do you, Bob, what do you, let, let's let Bob vote. He won't feel as bad if we get it wrong. I think I'll stick with the Biggio thing. Okay. So, what, what do we have here? We have A-Ride, Jeter, Biggio. Yeah, that's good guess. Those are good guesses. <laughs> is it okay? I know. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess we did what we always do: talk ourselves <laughs> out of the right answer. But let's just find out. So, Bill, is there any chance that it's Derek Jeter, A Rod, and what we decide, Biggio? Derek Biggio. All right. Let's okay, find out. you did you did well enough to get into the postseason. All right. Meaning you got you got two out of three. Meatloaf would be happy. All right. The leader, Derek Jeter, 17-22 hits. Second, you got that right, Alex Rodriguez, 16-63. Wow. Now, before I tell you the third, who you didn't mention, (laughs) I'll tell you the the fourth was Chipper Jones. Sixth was Craig Craig Biggio, who had 10 more hits than Manny did. Wow. Now, you you spent some time on Mark Race, which I loved, because during that time period, he was 76. He had 12 more hits than uh, uh, Doug did, <laughs> which is incredible. The guy, the guy you didn't mention for third was Garrett Anderson. Oh, Garrett. Wow. Garrett Anderson had 1,641 hits. And I'll tell you, somebody else who you didn't mention, who never gets mentioned and deserves a, way more love. Like Bill Miller, that's the one guy I thought about. 
Johnny Damon. Johnny, yeah. yes. Johnny <laughs> Damon had 1,539 hits. Wow. And you, he was he was a very consistent ball player for many years. He was. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. Garrett but, Anderson. Uh, you know what, Doug? Like We're it. officially terrible. I, I cannot even remember the last time we got one of these right. <laughs> too many, man, man, just, too much I, I just so want to add one other thing for, for Doug's make to make Doug even feel even better. During the t- time period that he played, Ken Griffey Jr. had 17 more hits than he did. That's nothing. They, they were often compared, Bill. Yes. I know. I know. Better fielders. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, whether we get the questions right or wrong, the highlight of the segment, as everybody knows by now, is not actually us. It's the part where we bring in the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, to play another fabulous play-by-play clip involving this week's answer. So, Tim, please distract everybody from that <laughs> performance. I had a feeling that you guys would get Jeter and A-Rod as you did. So I figured I'd go the other direction with the audio. So we're going to go with Garrett Anderson. Um, postseason hits don't count in this, but we're going postseason anyone. Anyway, Game 7, 2002 World Series. Right, right field and into the corner. Eckstein scores. Erstad scores. Here's Salmon. Ball to Garrett Anderson. Rifle down the right field line. Tim Salmon running the bases angrily. <laughs> Against Dusty Baker, who of course is a friend of the podcast. Yeah, Another Dusty just turned close call. Dusty just turned off this episode for sure. <laughs> yeah. But that was that was really fun to hear Joe Buck and Tim McCarver describe that one. Uh, yeah, right, we're not even gonna recap our horrible record <laughs> of this. Uh what but Bob, before I let you go, yeah. I, have to get your take on the NBA Finals. Celtics Warriors could be a classic. Tied 1-1. How do you see They're this matchup? keeping with the tenor of the entire postseason, and I think it even extends to hockey and this year specifically, is that there is absolutely no guarantee of a carryover from any game to game. To game. Yes. Once the game is over, you wipe the slate clean. There is no carryover. There's no such thing as momentum that doesn't exist. Uh, uh, th- these are uh, two strange games to, for you know uh, in a sense of, uh, it it's going to go six minimum it probably will go seven uh they're they're well the Celtics match up actually quite well with this team and there are guys that can play for them that they couldn't play again in the Miami series such as uh Peyton Pritchard and and, and Daniel Tice the auxiliary players who will be able to get some minutes and help out the situation but what a weird series look at Al Horford we knew Al Horford wasn't going to get six, make six threes in another game, but we didn't know he was going to have one field goal the next game, right? <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, this is going to, this is just the nature of this beast now. So um, I'm, uh, it, it's, it, it, it's a very nicely evenly matched uh, pair, pairing. It really is. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't wait to watch the rest of this series. Um, in the meantime, Bob, Bill, what a great question. Yeah, great what question. A great book. All the best with the book. Uh, please Thank come you. back and visit us oh, again sometime in Starkville. Love huh? to come back. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. We'd love to come back. Thank, Thank you. you. And by the way, the 2002 World Series game is in the book. Oh. It's game two in which the winning pitcher and the losing pitcher's names were F. Rodriguez. <laughs> also, it is the last. You, oh, Jason, here's one right up your rally. It's the last World Series game uh, and, and, and without a strikeout. There'll never be another one. Uh, (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Wow.
Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, thanks, guys. So that was so much fun. Thank Absolutely. you. Appreciate it. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be bringing you podcast magic just like it all season long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to read the fantastic writing in The Athletic about baseball or anything else, we can tell you how to do that. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. And if you're a new subscriber, you can subscribe for just $1 a month for the next six months. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast. Every show, we pick the most fun listener trivia question of the week. Then that listener gets to join us right here and prove week after week there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. So you can email us a question at starkville at theathletic.com or you can hit us with those questions via the Twitter. <laughs> if you were via the Twitter, <laughs> is Doug Glanville on there anywhere? Well, given Glanville, sounds, sounds like, kind of sounds like a town. Uh, we have a lot of streets and roads, so via makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So I would say via at Doug Glanville, at D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-D-I-L-L-E. <laughs> I am via at Jason ST. That's Jason with a Y S T. Please remember to hashtag the questions, hashtag Starkville QS. So Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Tim Kirkshin for joining us. Thanks to Bob Ryan and Bill Chuck for the fun trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Tomorrow it's Roundtable Day here on the Athletic Baseball Show. And Doug and I will see you next Tuesday on Starkville. Starkville.